girl and your friends bad girl and your 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 Yeah, we just kind of like to roll with it. So first, Amy, this is Lucas. Hi, Amy. Hi, Lucas, nice Amy. to meet you. Nice yeah. to meet you, too. Amy, thank you for taking the time, and sorry for the various iterations of confusion, but I'm glad that we are okay. making it work. Well, mostly on my side, so my yeah, fault. You know, whatever. Good. I did get to listen to a couple of the sessions. So. Oh, cool. Cool. What so your- then you can probably tell that we have no real plan we just sort of <laughs> roll with whatever is interesting to folks so i don't know if there are things that you're thinking about that you want a space to play with um or it, you know of course if you want to talk about your work which i think is totally awesome and amazing and there's a good chance that many people well i don't know that many people listen to our podcast but yeah there's, there, there's a good chance yeah. that a high percentage of those few people that do listen to it may not be aware of your work, which is one of the yeah, reasons should, yeah. why I wanted to have the opportunity for you to Great. come and talk to us and with us. Fantastic. I, I don't really have. Yeah. Well, no worries. Let's, we'll let's, let's start with that. Cause there are a lot of different things I could talk about, but I definitely want to talk about the work, but there are just a lot of different angles to yeah. approach it in. So, my daughter has been really enjoying the app and she's 11. Um, and you know, I've explored it a little bit. I've mostly just kind of let her have her, her time with it, but it's, she's, she's really found it very nourishing. So that's super cool. I am really thrilled to hear that. I am really, really happy to hear that. That is fantastic. That is really good. Can you talk a little bit about some of the features? I didn't. I listened to some of the podcast, or I guess yeah, podcast, and but I haven't been able to download the app yet. So the app, uh, the Inner Strength Mobile app, was launched in April of 2021 after a 13 month development period of writing meditations and writing activities and. It is a mindfulness app developed specifically for teens and Mm -hmm. your daughter's 11 and she's responding to it. So I guess it can go even a little bit lower, Um, but it is, it's a wellness tool that really works with mindfulness practices, social, emotional learning, self-reflection, as well as, um, perspectives that help students learn about the brain, 
learn about their reactions and responses and the evolutionary coding that's gone into that over 300 million years. It took a long time to get to the human brain. And I have a lot of theories about why we've developed the way we have. So some of those are embedded in, as well as uh, cultural awareness and, and understanding of how the ways culture has changed in broad strokes over the last 800 years has deeply changed our experience. So we have more individual agency and freedom and possibility to express ourselves uniquely and less social support, less stability, less structure, less reliability. So these are interesting times and all those perspectives are really preparing students to think deeply about their experience in the world and what and to depersonalize a lot of the challenges and self-doubt that they have. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I have to it sounds like something I want to download for myself. <laughs> Please do. I'm and and um any feedback you have we're we're already working on the next iteration. Okay. Um, and so Amy, this comes out of a project that you have been doing in the public school system of Philadelphia for a number of years, right? So I, in 2013, after many years living in rural Massachusetts in a residential meditation community, uh, my husband and I moved to the city of Philadelphia. And here I was after a, a lifetime living in an international world of meditators and philosophers and collective intelligence experiments and things like that to the inner city. And I was trying to figure out how I could translate the best of what I'd learned over. Well, I started meditating in 1978 when I was in high school and I went to Asia in 1983 so I've really been doing this all my life. And I was trying to figure out, okay, here I am in um, the 10th poorest of the 10 largest American cities uh, with a population, the public school system here, uh, the population is 95% from families of poverty in the public school system. And they define poverty in Philadelphia as $24,000 a year for a family of four. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So we're, there are pockets and neighborhoods in this city that you just wouldn't imagine really existed in the so-called first world. And I really wanted to see, you know, I think the world has changed since I was, you know, first practicing. And also students from those backgrounds would, won't have the disposable time and income even if it's not much income or, or mobility in the world that I had to, to go and spend years with teachers in long retreats and, and doing things like that. So I really tried to translate what the best of what I learned and the things that worked for me into a curriculum that could be delivered in the public school system. So it's a 12 week program that is delivered weekly, one period a week. So about 45 to 53 minutes Schools are very precise. They give you three minutes in between for a bathroom break. Um, and I started with one classroom, 30 students, and I fell in love with them. They were awesome. We had such a good time. 
And we were talking about the difference between mind, thought, and awareness, and how do you define who you are? And are are you your thoughts? Are you what's aware of thoughts? What is what role does the brain play? You know, is awareness, consciousness, an epiphenomena of the brain? You know, we were doing all this in public school in Philadelphia. And people have so many stereotypes about teenagers who come from poverty, you know, and live in rough neighborhoods in the city. But teens are teens. They want to learn. They want to explore. They want to know who they are. They want to experiment with states of consciousness. And I literally had not set foot in a high school since 1979 when I graduated. And I graduated a year early because I, when I was a freshman, I hated high school so much. I said, I'm going to finish early. I'm going to get out of here as quickly as I can. But they were, they were really great. Um, so that was 2014. That summer I wrote a full curriculum which has four components really about mind, thought, and awareness, compassion building, understanding the qualities that make for good relationships, the art and science of friendship, and uh, the evolutionary development of the brain and the adolescent brain, and cultural shifts and how our worldviews affect our experience. Mm -hmm. So it's not a social justice program, so it's not about cultural change in that way. Mm it takes time in a little bit bigger chunks, but of course, um, a lot of the philosophies that I drew from some integral work, some spiral dynamics, some of, um, Peter Senge's systems thinking that I had absorbed. I didn't draw directly from them, but having worked with those different methodologies Mm -hmm. over, you know, 20 years, 15 years, they were in me. Um, and those have definitely had to adjust. Um, now we are this year, we were in 100 classrooms, reaching over 5000 students with a 12 week program. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, how, um, I mean, can I if I can go a little mundane, how in the world did you get that approved? <laughs> you, you know, my, my whole family are educators, basically. And that sounds like a fantastic thing to have in any school. And I'm just hearing the conversation between my brother and the superintendent and how it's just not going to fly. So how in the world did that come about? Um, I think I built it. I built this program with the idea that it would become large enough to reach a critical mass of students every year, year after year. And so peers would reinforce these these worldviews and these techniques with each other and that eventually we'd be able to improve and uplift the culture of the city because if enough students get this every year and it becomes the norm and they learn how to self-reflect and how to calm down and they become better team players they're better they make it through school they make it through job training or associate degrees or four-year colleges they're better entry-level employees and that was my vision from the beginning So I published a curriculum. I trained teachers. I ensured fidelity. I worked with researchers at Syracuse University. Um, We got an IRB and we got the district to approve research. So we were evidence-based. We used initially two scales, one called the Adolescent Self-Regulatory Index and one the NEF Self-Compassion Scale. And we showed improvement over three years uh, with those two scales under the IRB. And since then... 
we're no longer approved by the district for official research, but we do pre and post surveys using the same scales and a new scale uh, called the Epoch scale, which is engagement, perseverance, optimism, uh, connectedness and happiness, which is a new scale being used by the government on like a 3 million student study that they're doing over multiple years. So it's a new, it's a relatively new scale, but it will be very credible because it's coming out of the, you know, it's really being used across a broad level of students. So we did that and that really helps. And it's not just stress reduction. So it's not mindfulness activities that are disembedded from the context of a student's life in Mm. school, you know, and students need to learn. And if you're working with 15, 16, 17 year olds, their time's at a premium, especially the ones, you know, working to get into college, they, they need their academic time. So we had evolutionary biology, we had history, we had self, you know, writing and self-reflection. So there were a lot of academic components Mm. woven in. Um, And I think I also probably hit it at the right time. It was just that time where I worked a little bit under the radar, not intentionally, but I didn't try to get money from the district. I didn't try to Ah. make it district-wide. So we trained 12,000 students in a three-month program without getting a penny from the public school system. So we fundraised, wrote grants. So, you know, if you're in a poor school district with kids who have experienced a very high rate of trauma Mm -hmm. and you're offering a program that's credible, that's research-based, that is delivered consistently, that has a curriculum, you know, where the teachers all have clear, you know, everything was done by the book and you're Mm -hmm. not asking for money. Yeah, there's no downside for the admin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It depends on your district, but that's that's really how it took off. And and now we just built the mobile app because we couldn't stay in touch with our students after we finished the three month program. So how are we gonna how are we gonna know if they use the tools? I mean, I run into some of them on the street and they go, Yeah, you know, I'm in my second year of college and this really helped me through and I teach my roommates and we do it before studying. So the ones that I see, I know, um, and it's, you know, really lives have been changed because of it. And, and that's so, it's so gratifying to see that. It's a super awesome and beautiful project. And your book, The Conscious Classroom is just really, so one of the things there's many many things i love about this book but one of the things that i really love about it is that it it takes uh a variety of philosophical principles that i think are very much at play and a lot of the kind of noosphere you know meta theoretical aspects of the popular intellectual world um and it conveys them in a way that is entirely practical and understandable and free from jargon. Um, and it, it has a scope where as you move through these different um, aspects of how 
exposing, expressing, helping a teen to come to understand the incredible richness of who they are and how they came to be, that you can interweave all of these different really important um, systems level models. But again, in this way where it's like, you know, I, I really feel like a clever 16-year-old could read that book and understand every single thing in it without having to stretch, right? And I think that level of distillation of these like super abstract systems and principles into something that is so cogent, um, it's just, it's awesome. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful uh, that, that you made this piece of work. So, all right, off, off my, my soapbox of <laughs> Rhapsody for how awesome this book is. And all of you who are listening to this, if you have not read it, please do yourself a favor and read this book. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to know two things. You can either answer them both or pick one. If there is or was a specific moment in time when like, you saw that this was the next project, this was the thing that you wanted to really build. Um, and then the other thing I'm curious to hear about is that, you know, we understand a little bit about the process of getting the inner strength program from one place throughout the district. But like, how did you get into the first classroom? <laughs> because that also seems like there's gotta be an interesting story there. There's definitely a story there. Thank you for your very warm comments about the book. I had a lot of fun writing it and I kept feeling like I have so much to say that I just, there was, there was a lot to, that I wondered if it all went together, but it had to go together because it was all part of the gestalt of the experience of working with these students, uh, getting to know them better, getting to know, you know, engaging with, their life circumstances are, you know, the the underbelly of American structure, how we got here, and, you know, and then connected with aspirational work. And I think that it all comes from my own experience rather than a lot of – I have studied a lot and I've read a lot, but I think that why you felt it was understandable rather than theoretical was I really wasn't trying to make a research book. I kept feeling like I should, I kept feeling like, Oh, I should, I should really take five years and do a real scholarly work, but I didn't have, I, I couldn't afford the time. And I just wanted to get something out quickly. So I could also explain to people, this is what's behind this program. And I, I feel like, I'm very happy that mindfulness is becoming more and more popular and mindfulness being a euphemism for meditation. It's, uh, you know, I use that term, you know, I have studied in Theravadan schools. They were some of my early meditation schools, but when I use the word mindfulness, I'm talking about the broader field of contemplative practices and studies. But I think that, um, Oftentimes when, when those tools and practices are applied in a therapeutic setting or an education setting, the depth is taken out. And I couldn't do that because that 
was my whole journey over 40 years that was was seeking for depth and meaning and and for students who are struggling you know to find meaning in a world that really is not working for them uh in very serious ways um i really felt you know i i i wouldn't be able to teach a program that didn't have that and i wouldn't I wouldn't want them to study in a program that didn't open portals to uh, deeper dimensions of meaning and purpose. So it's, I mean, this is not, I will answer your questions, but one of the things that I thought a lot about in relationship to this is the secularization of mindfulness and the inherent problems with that. So, you know, our world is becoming more and more awake to and sensitive to the way Western thought has colonized the world and more specifically white male thought has colonized the world. And uh, what you can see with mindfulness and with these Eastern teachings is that as we've made them secular so that we're not um, uh, going against people's religious beliefs in public school. And, you know, if you're an evangelical Christian or if you're an Orthodox Muslim, a lot of your beliefs will be in conflict with the way that the Eastern teachings are, are presented. So you do have to be careful and be respectful of other traditions. But when we justify those depth dimensions only with the Western scientific paradigm, we were basically validating this white European male way of thinking over thousands of years of very um, studied evidence-based systems that have worked with dimensions of consciousness and sanity and wholeness and mental health conditions that is so extraordinarily complex and we're basically cutting off the roots. So I've thought a lot about, you know, all of this. Look, most Westerners are not going to take the time to study the Abhidhamma or or learn. And certainly I haven't compared to what, you know, I would need to spend, you know, 30 years in some kind of rarefied monastic situation, you know, to spend the time to really understand. But that knowledge does exist. It's getting lost. In my mm-hmm. lifetime over the 30 years, I mean, many of the older generation of teachers have died and the, you know, modern day young Indians don't have the time. They're westernized now. They're not going to dedicate the time. And so these are some of the conundrums that I wrestle with, but at least what I'm trying to bring in my program is an awareness that there's a, there's a dimensionality that's possible in our approach to whole person wellness mm-hmm. and meaning and purpose that is not just watch your breath to calm down from anxiety, which is useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the gateway contemplative practice from my point of view. It's like, sure, learning how to self-regulate is a fundamental skill, but that's, you know, that's only the beginning, right, of what 
I don't need to tell you, but nonetheless, I'm going to say of what is possible if we really start to engage with contemplative practice mm -hmm. and, you know, other forms of self-cultivation practices kind of in a, in a broader sense of the kinds of transformation that are possible, right? And so it's an interesting thing as you point to the younger generation in India not having time, right? And the Westernization and I'm just kind of minded of the the way in which at this moment, right, the, you know, we're potentially on or in a boundary space between this closed loop of modernism and postmodernism that we've been in for a relatively short period of time, considering how long humans have been around, but for quite a long time in terms of the way that it's affected the world, right? There's been some time compression there. And that one of the artifacts of that, right, is that even in the worst and most desperate situations, you still have to like grind it out. You have to, you know, work to make enough money to not be able to pay all your bills because you need more stuff that's been taken out of the earth that's going to be turned back into trash, right? And so it's like this, so in that, space and that dance no there's no time right but like that whole thing is the thing that we have to wake up from right because it's if we don't i mean i i think it it's pretty clear that there won't be a very habitable planet for very many beings so it's just i this is not really a question it's just more of a this is kind of what you're saying is sparking in me and i'm thinking about how um, elegant it is to bring into the public education system, which I think is a noble venture that has largely also been co-opted by these same dynamics, right? And that so much of public and private education, at least in this country, now seems to be preparation so that you can join this extractive set of dynamics, right? And so when we can put something else into that mix that's really about turning inward and starting to understand oneself that truly seems like a um a beautiful and hopeful and also incredibly subversive on a certain level mm -hmm. approach to engagement and i don't mean uh like you know maybe some people are going to take that in a direction that is not the direction but i mean but in the sense that it has the potential to subvert these dynamics that we're talking about that are actually, you know, keeping us locked into a system that then creates more situations where people are living in the kind of dire circumstances of poverty that these kids are. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the next generation, to be able to respond to the complexification of the world and the enormity of the problems that they're going to be faced with, whether it's the wealth gap, which is a serious problem, and it, it's exponentially growing because that's the way capital works, is when you have a lot of it, you grow very quickly. And that gap is very different uh, for these young people than it was in our generation or the generation, you know, 15 years earlier. 
let alone the militarization of particularly America. I don't know if you have international listeners, but, you know, there's this arms race being pushed by, I'm sure if we followed the money, we would know exactly why there are so many guns on the street, but you make more cheap weapons available on the street, then you militarize the peacekeepers because they need to be protected. And then you militarize the ones up from that. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry or trillion dollar industry, multi-trillion dollar industry. The murder rate in Philadelphia last year, 2020, there were the most murders in Philadelphia from guns of the last 30 years. We are now in June and the murder rate now is 40% higher than it was last year. And we are seeing, you know, kids, you know, kids are hotheaded. Mm -hmm. 16, 17 year old boys are hotheaded. So if all they have are their fists, they're going to break each other's nose and, Mm -hmm. you know, then they're going to make up and, and, you know, or their older brothers are going to come and they're going to tussle it out. But if they have guns, they die. And I have sadly, um, you know, the schools that we work in, we've lost students. We've had to be on site with the school that's grieving Mm because a 15-year-old got shot 18 times by an underage rival gang member. Mm-hmm. But they're just kids. They're not, they're not criminals. They're not, if they didn't have access, they wouldn't resolve their conflicts that way. And they're too they're in that in the throes of adolescence so risk doesn't mean the same thing that it does when you get older mm-hmm. i know i walked in the himalayas for 12 months when i was you know 21 not knowing that it might be dangerous cuz i was on an adventure um you know would i do that now <laughs> no you know and so they have the same brain and i think that Um, these conflicts that we're seeing and the roots behind them, the power structures behind them are so strong, you know, let alone, you know, institutionalized racism and the majority, vast majority of students that my program works with are um, people of color, um, you know, African-American descent, Latinx, uh, Cambodian, Vietnamese, Chinese. And so they're, they're working against a system that is so stacked against them Mm -hmm. that unless they've got deeper tools to help them like find some kind of stable ground and that depth of optimism and that you discover when you can let go in meditation, you start to experience this current of non-separation. And you're like, where did that come from? I haven't changed. The world hasn't changed. COVID's all around me. Um, You know, or previously, you know, we had, you know, a government that was just insane. 
and destructive and there was a lot of violence so how do you find calm in the middle of that you can't control your outside circumstances you're going to have to find that within and having i i lived in dharamsala for a year which is the community in northern india where the dalai lama has his residence in the large tibetan community in exile and so i really saw firsthand individuals who'd come from imprisonment and was it you know the chinese invaded tibet in 1959 i was in dharamsala in 80 different points between 83 and 86. So it was, there were still a lot of people coming over and they would meet with the Dalai Lama and they would describe what had happened and he would comfort them and and speak with them and counsel them. And I could see how their meditation was helping them cope with this horrible suffering and pain and violence and and loss of their culture and i thought if anything can be that powerful to deal with something like that then of course we could apply it in american cities and Mm. ultimately what's going to have to happen is is that young people who are learning these tools now will innovate you know just like john kabat-zinn and richie davidson innovated when they brought it Mm -hmm. you know joseph goldstein sharon salzberg and jack cornfield all those guys you know, came over when they were in their, you know, Sharon, late teens, you know, Joseph, and those guys in their 20s. They innovated in a, you know, white, educated, mostly, you know, intellectual milieu. And, and now, you know, it's time for the next iteration of innovation to take place. But we have to give them, we have to, we have to spread these tools. And so I said a lot of, there are a lot of different, pieces to all this but of mm-hmm. course those are the things on my mind um and partly the gun violence is on my mind because we now have a partnership with the district this year was our first year we're going into our second year um which was funded by a grant from the pennsylvania commission on crime and delinquency mm. um but they want us to create a program that will be used in the six schools where students are most impacted by gun violence. They've lost a student or they've seen, and, and you know, if you've lost a student and it's a school community, 500 kids, everyone feels it. Right. Am I next? Is this gonna happen on my block? Hmm. It's gonna happen to my brother. Yeah, we're, 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 yeah, that's why this is such a scourge because it's not just one individual, it's an entire school community and all the teachers and all their families, it, 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 it ripples. So, so these are, you know, as a white middle-aged woman, I'm definitely very aware of what kinds of cultural bridges I can make or not and um, how to translate the best of my experience in a way that's going to be accessible to students who are grappling with issues that I never had to and won't really have to. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's a complicated world. Mm -hmm. No doubt. I love the fact that, 
um, you know, you're recognizing your position as a middle-aged white woman um, and the fact that, you know, white colonizers put us here. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of steps in between those two things, but... Um, and that you're not stepping in and saying, this is how, you know, this is how we fix it, or, you know, what you're doing is wrong, or, you know, pointing out things that necessarily are bad. You're giving tools so that the kids can use those and make them their own. They can tailor them to their own uh, lives and and then expand on that, too, because it's once you have a basic framework for understanding how to, you know, I mean, just being mindful alone is, is monumental, but then, you know, once you have that framework, those kids can take that and run with that. And then, like I said, having ownership of how you deal with um, your development in those formative years, I think is really amazing. And then they can, you know, pick apart, the system from the inside if they want to, or, you know, at least they can see the separation from themselves in the system at that point, you know, rather than saying like, just, you know, I don't know, for, for me, it's, it's, it feels like not my place to say that, I mean, it, it's helpful on some level, I guess, to say that, okay, these are all the things I recognize all these parts of the society that, um, you know, where you're struggling now is because of X, Y, and Z. I understand the value of that for sure. But like when you come to that realization on your own, because of you're being, you're able to step out of the system and, and challenge your motives for things that I think that's much more powerful and resonant, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I guess what, what I also try to bring to, students and also to my teachers as well because is is really that sense of oneness the sense of unity consciousness that comes from deep practice because when you have that even though acculturated experience is radically different and that means that you know i walk down the street with other people who look different from me and our experience of the same block at the same time is not the same experience. At the same time, when you have experienced so deeply the fullness and bliss of utter non-separation, then there isn't that same othering. (laughs) You're like, yeah, if mm-hmm. I had been born, if I had had the karma to be born in your family, I would see the world the way you do. And if you had the karma to be born in my family, you would see the world the way I do. That that so much of this is circumstantial, you know, even if you believe in reincarnation or even if you don't, you know, you just see a life continuum and you can see that we're really not fundamentally different. We're we're very much products of our life circumstances that we've been born into and acculturated into. And then there really is a different sense of non-separation that 
allows for the vastly different experiences in this world that we're moving in. And, and that I think is important because I know that my, my years being able to do a lot of spiritual practice and study with a lot of different teachers and learn a lot of different systems is going to be really valuable. And I'm also aware that there are a lot of things about my background that are totally unrelatable. I see people in my position, you know, who are white teaching mindfulness in, you know, the euphemism is inner city school kids. But really, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, students from under-resourced schools, under-resourced families, mostly black or, or students of color. And you know, there's, there's like this odd separation where they feel, oh, well, I can't relate because, but you can relate as that one consciousness without over, you know, running over the incredible differences of life experience. And, and so I think that that is, is really important. And especially for people who've had the privilege to do decades of practice. It's, it's so important that that experience is shared. Um, but in order to share it, you have to come from the depth of your own experience in, in meditation. You, know, you, you have to come from that sense of non-duality. Uh, otherwise, the, you can't make the bridges. Yeah, I, I, I'm loving the, that bridge between the transcendent and eminent that I am hearing as you speak, right? Because, you know, on the one, on one level, yes, we're all connected as one consciousness, but on this other level, right, even though our subjective experience of how I select for what I'm perceiving as I walk down the block is based on a whole set of context-dependent cultural artifacts that are going to be unique to my situation and different from either of yours or folks that are of color or like basically any group, right? We're all going to have these kind of unique subjective expressions. But on the other hand, too, not just at the level of one consciousness, but the fact of the matter is that like, I can't exist without everything else in the universe. It had to all be here and has to be here, whatever exactly that might mean. We don't have to go get into the epistemics of that or the ontology of that. But like, you know, without the sun, right, without the atmosphere, without the waters, without the plants, without every other being and every other thing that we wouldn't think of as a being, like we're all together in this and we lean into the subjective so often. But in point of fact... Yes, I'm an individual, and at the same time, I'm an individual that can only be at all, right, with all of the other things that we would think of as individuals. So on a certain level, right, it's like that is also this like, you know, in the transcendent and also in the eminent, it's this kind of illusory thing where it's like, no, we think of it as being separate, but we could just as easily, if we did this from the time we were born, think of it as continuous, Exactly. Right? We could just as easily. It's just as true. Right? And maybe I would even offer a little more true. A little closer to how reality... I, w I wouldn't presume to know what reality is, right? Ultimately. 
but I think that seeing this continuous dynamic is is a much more useful model and metaphor. Um, but it's really tricky because that's not the civilization that we've built, right? That's not where where this thing that we're living within comes from. So making that shift again, and this is a little bit where I was going with subversive, right? Is that it literally subverts this paradigmatic structure, right? And offers not because, um, I mean, I haven't taken the class, like maybe this is said outright, but my hunch is that as Lucas was pointing to, there's an experiential component, right? Of the person who's teaching and their experience and then the exercises practices inquiry is experiential so the understanding is born out of that not me saying look everything's connected (laughs) right like maybe i can point that out in terms of physics but one of our teachers ed neil likes to talk about how you know the way to create the possibility for someone to change their point of view is not to tell them that they're wrong but to just show them something that is more beautiful and compelling and harmonious or deeper or richer. And there's a good chance that that person might be interested in exploring that. And that to me, you know, as I'm imagining into what it would be like to be in this class is kind of what I, what I see, right? Is this presentation of something that is so beautiful and rich that how could I not be a little curious about what that might be like to play in that space. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you, I have the, you know, my earliest memories of grappling with life did have to do with this continuum of all things. Um, I can tell the story it's in the book. My father was a particle physicist and he was, he was, really a scientific materialist. I mean, it was what you could see and measure. And even if those things were infinitesimally small, it was what you could see and measure. And, you know, it was not mystical or spiritual in any way, shape or form. But he used to talk to us about quarks and at the dinner table. And he used to talk to us about how they change depending on what experiments you were doing and what you were looking for. And that if you look for one thing, they look to a certain way. And if you look for another thing, lo and behold, they changed what they did and what their makeup was. And, you know, talk to us about the space between a nuclei, nuclei of an atom and the electrons. And I used to try to figure out, well, if everything's made of the same building blocks and if the building blocks are all exactly the same and there's a lot of space around them so where does my hand end and something else begin when the table begin or my other finger begin why are these separate and that those were my earliest kind of frustrations and conundrum and if you think about well like you said, you know, from one perspective, we couldn't exist without absolutely everything else because everything else is part of this and it all exists. It, it's not a question of want to be or not want to be. It's it's there and we're all part of it. And if you look at the building blocks, then where is the separation in this continuum? And how do we figure that out? Yeah. 
And those are the fun things to think about. Totally. And I think it's a useful heuristic to like be able to have a sense of where boundaries are. Like I will often joke that a things in space point of view is useful for making dinner and driving a car, you know, like it's not without its utility. Um, though I still think if we can lean into process, you know, verb rather than noun kinds of orientations, we can still have boundaries, right? They have a different kind of permeability, right? But I do, you know, I don't want to, um, I think for me, what's so problematic about it, and, you know, it's like the linguistic turn, right? It's like, it's so embedded in the Indo-European language family of this subject object forces acting on things, right? right? Is like, I don't agree with Chomsky. Like, I don't actually think that that's hardwired in because, of course, there are languages that are primarily verbal. Um, and then there's some other really interesting things happening with this sign language in this town called El Said. And it's a Bedouin village that has the highest percentage of deaf people in the world. And so normally in languages, there's this idea, right, of um, dual reducibility. Like you have phonemes that you build into words, but you can take them apart, right? So you have sounds and those sounds get put together in some way um, and pretty much there's been an assumption in linguistics that like every language follows this like people can imagine languages that don't but in the the wild the linguistic wild so to speak nobody had ever seen one until they found this sign language where there were holistic gestures to describe processes like no one has ever seen a language like this before um, so clearly <laughs> it's not actually a structural artifact that that language has to be any particular way right um and i i think that where i'm going with all of this is that the for those of us that grew up speaking an indo-european language as a first tongue i think it's even more incumbent and imperative for us to really do this work of disembedding ourselves from this 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 sense of individual acting on object right that force comes from the outside and moves thing because you know it's a, it's a like when i wrap wire around a magnet there's electricity it's not that the electricity comes from somewhere right it's not being put onto the magnet it's like this is the relationship between these two things this is what happens right and so you know Again, it's not a night when I'm really asking any particular questions. I'm just kind of, <laughs> just kind of going on on what where this conversation seems to be leading. So I'll leave it there for now. That's fascinating about that Bedouin community. Mm. I'm, I'm curious actually to learn a little more. I'll send you the article that I saw. It's from I think it's from Nautilus or, or Quanta, but I'll I'll dig it up and send it your way. I'd love to see it. The other thing that I don't know very much about, but I'm very curious about right now is Neanderthals and the way they think and some of the research. Uh, Gary Lockman, one of his recent books, I mean, he's so prolific, I can't remember which one it was, but something about consciousness where he, he spends a section talking about, I mean, what I love about Gary Lockman is he does do all this original research and so he reads all these very complicated texts for you and he usually he'll tell you what the the faults are of different authors but he doesn't write off 
all of their findings. Mm -hmm. It's very discriminating in that way. And he lays that out for you. So anyway, he's talking about some of the um, paleontological research into Neanderthal consciousness. And it seems like human beings could have ended up very differently. And had we had our lineage gone that way, and that there is a much more advanced civilization than was previously thought. And if you start doing more research into Neanderthals, you you come across all these things. When the superior species came, (laughs) and you're like, but what's interesting about Neanderthals is really this sense of you know, they called it closeness to nature, but it seems like there was a knowingness or intuitiveness or something that we ascribe now to more indigenous peoples or shaman, shamanistic cultures. Or, But it seems like there was quite a sophisticated sense of process, yeah. of non-separation, of the fluidity of all things of that deep cause and effect. So everything is always in motion and one thing is flowing into the other's possibilities are emerging and flowing out and possibilities are closing because other possibilities open. And if the course, you know, if the river takes a course that way, then certain, certain things are going to grow. And if it doesn't Mm -hmm. go that way, then those things are going to die. You know, so there's all this, this sense of, of the real, um, you know, constant flow it's not just change it's it's this process of mm-hmm. of movement and growth and and co-creation of all things all at once simultaneously yeah. and i i feel i've always felt very connected to that way of seeing and in some ways the philosophies that i read more about or immerse myself in practices have I've gravitated toward the strands that talk about process that mm-hmm. talk about that. It's not a static beingness. It's, it's, a, it's, it's being in action and it's not what, what a lot of evolutionary spiritual thinkers talk about in terms of, uh, you know, like John Stewart called the arrow of evolution that's going one way, which again is, is it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. It actually, you know, it sounds good, but it actually doesn't really make sense to the way life works. You know, right. things open up, things close, you know, different possibilities emerge. They, one leads to another, but this sense of, and, and, we lose capacities and we gain capacities. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you, I would, like I said, I don't know much about the Neanderthals, but my, my imagination is peaked that there, and you think about the Aboriginal cultures and, and just the, the sense of space and time and memory that have been lost. There were potentials in human consciousness that we no longer have access to primarily because of language primarily because of the spoken and the written word and the way it developed has closed it's open certain capacities and it's closed others. And I think mm-hmm. that the more we become aware of that, then the more we can start becoming sensitive to some of the ways that our capacities have grown and developed that have allowed us to be things in space, doing things to other things in space, which means there isn't a sense of consequence. 
that we act with impunity because we do not have a felt relationship to that consciousness of what comes next out of that act. Right, because we disembed, like somehow I'm separate from nature Mm -hmm. and I can act upon it, right? Which is like truly a staggeringly mind-boggling slight of illusory, you know, machination like within within the within the mind because it's like it's so preposterous but you know one of the things i'm thinking about or like i'm thinking about a number of things as you're talking about this i don't know if you know tyson young caporta's work his book sand talk no highly recommended um and so tyson is a appalachian clan member an aboriginal fellow who um is also a complexity and systems science thinker. And so Santok is a book of applying indigenous knowledge systems to kind of Western thought and complexity science and history. It's, it's quite brilliant. One of the things he likes to say a lot is that, um, you know, people tell this story about like paleolithic man was, you know, like running away, terrified of the saber toothed tigers. And he's like, bullshit. They knew exactly where all the saber toothed tigers were. Right? Like that's not how it worked. Those folks, they had bigger brains and they were using more of them because of this distributed kind of, he f- frames it as cognition, right? But this cognition that's distributed into the landscape, that's a kind of a form of haptic cognition, right? So in the land and in the movement and relationship to the land, there is this way where the mind becomes, right? Like actively engaged in landscape and connection. And so like, you're not going to be surprised by a saber-toothed tiger because you know where it sleeps, you know when it gets up, you know what time of day, you know that they live there, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, like he's like in my you know tribe, nobody ever got eaten by an alligator. <laughs> nobody. It doesn't happen. There's no history of it. There's not even stories about it, right? So these things, and from his point of view, it's the change in capacity has more to do with. Um, the sundering of the bond between person, community, and country, meaning like your particular piece of land and that relationship where that land, you are its custodian, you're in relationship with it, it teaches you, you know, and your job as a human in community is to care for the land, right? That kind of everything moves out of and back into the land. Right. His contention would be that that and actually writing rather than language um, is the thing that really started to change the, the neurological structures that was the primary agent and catalyst for decreasing some of these capacities of being able to uh, engage in some of the ways that you're talking about potentially that the Neanderthals did. Now, just one dude's point of view, pretty well researched, but nonetheless, one dude's point of view, but an interesting, an interesting and connected perspective to all of this. I mean, I think that's why, you know, in the psychedelic mm-hmm. revolution in the 60s and 70s, every, you know, and now I think in the, you know, aughts and, you know, up through now, everyone wants to do ayahuasca because, People are trying to get an experiential sense of what does it mean when the grass is speaking? Mm. What does that feel like? 
what are those capacities that like open up for I've never done ayahuasca so I don't you know that's not my that's not my thing but um but like all good children of the 70s I, I <laughs> experiments and I think that the reason why it, it, it there, I think there are two reasons why those things create so much joy and faith because one, it opens up right now. We feel like we just need to learn more. And with the advent of the internet, with information there all the time, it's almost like you don't really need to learn more because you can, you can access it anyway, whenever you need it. But when you do things like that, you realize, no, there are other ways of seeing and being and knowing and loving and being connected and being fulfilled that you didn't even know. It wasn't just that you want more of it. You didn't even know that those layers were part of the human experience. And when that opens up, it, the connectedness and the sense of process and the sense of one living thing creates so much joy. And also that sense that, oh, there are we're not just locked and limited into this small human experience that we're just trying to make better there are dimensions of possibility that that we're we just need to open our eyes to and then start pursuing and the other book i i i opened up recently was one of edgar mitchell's books you know he was one of the astronauts who found mm -hmm. then he went on to found the institute of noetic sciences mm -hmm. and his experience, you know, he was a deeply mystical person, I think, anyway, but his experience seeing that one glow for the first time changed him so profoundly. It was a radical awakening. And yeah. he wanted everyone else to experience that sense of awakening when you see that, no, we are all hanging in space. You know, and so then the idea of you know, the, the Palestinians and the Israelis fighting over this little postage stamp of a corner mm -hmm. and ruining lives. It just feels, no, just disembed from that very, very small view because we'll never fix those problems right. mm -hmm. from that small view. We just never will. Right. Yeah, the classic, and, you can't solve a problem from the level of consciousness that created it or that it arose from within yeah like, and the sense of being limited you mm -hmm. know i think most people right now when you know kids talk about mental illness and and their parents talk about their you know that their their kids are so stressed and and it's because of the limitation of consciousness mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. sense that if we're in this world this world just is not working and I can't fix it. And, you know, a lot of kids say, you know, I don't want to be the savior of the world. I don't want this on my shoulders mm -hmm. and they shouldn't have to, they should be able to be human beings like everyone else and not have to right. end gun violence and fix the climate and, right. and dismantle structural white supremacy. And they're, they're 15, you know, <laughs> but 
I think when you have a sense that there are other dimensions and capacities of consciousness that we we can awaken to mm -hmm. and they can open up, then you feel like, oh, well, that's a real adventure. I mm -hmm. definitely want to go on that. And then things are open in a way that that makes a lot possible that doesn't feel possible otherwise. Right. I think the beautiful thing about that is that as you do those practices, all those other things shift anyway. You know, you don't have to feel like you have to take on, tackle the climate issues or social injustice or any of that. Because once you reframe your orientation or, and completely take yourself out of the system, at least mentally, then the, all those things change. I think it really does fundamentally come down to, like you said, mindset and, and being mindful. You know, if I'm, if I can, if I truly have em embodied the feeling of there is no separation, then you walk around wherever you live differently and you interact with everyone differently and your daily choices are completely different. So, you know, the idea of, um, so you you would probably vote a certain way, or you would um, just interact with people that wouldn't cause conflict, you know, those kind of things. You know, Lucas, it's an interesting edge that you're speaking to, right? And one of these, I, I I'm going to both and this before I even say what I'm going to say next. Um, <laughs> but this. Often there's discourse, right, about like, well, should we transform ourselves first or should we transform society first? Mm. And I feel like anytime we lean too much into either, first of all, if we see it as a bifurcation, that's its own kind of challenge that we're, I'm not even going to like get into at this particular mm -hmm. moment. But if we lean too much into those poles, right, of whether it's the individual or the collective, I feel like I can change my point of view and my experience radically to the point where maybe I can even be in a state of total acceptance in human bondage, but it doesn't make the bondage okay. And it doesn't necessarily change the bondage, right? Like it changes my orientation of that experience, right? But there has to be a way that we're both looking into my own transformation within myself and then really changing some of these systemic dynamics because if we don't right like great we have a bunch of awake people that are participating in something that is still at least from my point of view you know essentially anti-life right in its in its manifestation like the you know it's a radical statement but from from my current orientation you know capitalism is very clearly something that is not about the promotion of thriving and beauty, which is how I'm going to define life in this particular moment. That's not to say that there aren't people that don't appear to thrive and have beautiful experiences and there's not beautiful things within it, but the kind of just like vast disparity that Amy was talking about in terms of like the wealth gap as just one dynamic of this, right? It's like that in and of itself would be enough to be like, okay, this clearly doesn't work, right? Because this externalizes for the people that are thriving and experiencing beauty, which I think can only happen if we 
shut down a certain level of our perception and connectivity to the rest of the world, right? I'm externalizing all kinds of harm onto people that are vulnerable in order to kind of like live in this way, right? So not claiming like I have any solutions, but it's one of the reasons why I think like the kind of inquiry that Daniel Schmachtenberger is engaging in is so important because it definitely works, right? Like actively is working, you know, the component of one's own development and cultivation in whatever ways that's resonant and then finding. I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry, guys. That's all right. It's storming over here. So maybe that's it. I wonder. I don't think it's here. Anyway, sorry. Have at it. Have at it. <laughs> I'm not sure that I know exactly where it cut yeah, off. Yeah, sorry. But it's Oof. all right. It's all right. Apparently, yeah. I'm rambling. <laughs> so, um, wherever that second half of the sentence went, yeah. I think you know, it's tricky. It's tricky mm. because. I can listen to you from a lot of different parts of myself in a certain way. And I think at least at this moment, um, what I'm feeling is that we all have to respond to our own vocation and our own calling but really deeply and authentically that Mm. Um, because otherwise it's too easy to follow what seems to be the right way to reform culture and maybe to sell out on something that may have much more profound impact, but in ways that look different. And, you know, it's not to say that, we don't, you know, especially those of us who, you know, identify and pass as white, don't need to do a lot of self-reflection and active changing of the way that privilege manifests. And it's embedded, you know, it's embedded in a lot of the things that you were talking about in terms of structures of wealth and structures of, of, extraction and all of those things they're they're so closely associated that you can't really speak about one without the other just because of colonial history um at the same time it's not everyone's calling to protest in the streets and i know you're not saying that but i feel like i need to say that for all the listeners who are going to feel like i have to go and fight against you know structures of you know i have a very dear friend who has a a deep spiritual heart um right now he's involved in the xr movement in he lives in london and he's he started you know he spent years in asia in the early 70s so he was like 10 years before me so i always felt like i was too late on the scene because there were people like that who were before me um and he's not really doing, you know, what he's doing is climate. I, that's not my calling. Mm -hmm. I'm glad he's doing that. And and 
you know, and then there are other people I know who are very involved in, you know, the racial protest and, and the militarization of the police, um, you know, the fight against that. In, but it's not my calling. My, my calling is different. So I think we have to be deeply listening because those yogis who became profoundly awake, you know, the Ananda Mahimas or the Vivekanandas or the Ramakrishnas or the Ramanas or, you know, they, they, they had an impact on the world, you know, on millions of people's lives, but you would never know it in their lifetime. It just seemed, you know, Ananda Mahima was kind of, you know, her role was as an Indian housewife, basically. Um, you know, and she's considered one of the greatest living saints and all these miracles inspired her. So I, I'm just saying that we can't have a limited idea. I'm not saying that we can exploit others, and uh, but I, but also we have to allow for spirit to work in dimensions and to be able to amplify good in the world in ways that we can't quantify, you know, oh yes, there were half a million people on the streets. Yes. That means X, Y, and Z. It's still part of that limited paradigm <laughs> in a certain way. And it's very important. It's very, very important. We, we have to change laws. We have to protest, you know, these things need to happen at the same time. Uh, there, at least in my sense of how things work that um the spirit does move and brings goodness and love in very unexpected and powerful profound ways and if we're willing to spend time in that and trust and let go and follow that flow then all kinds of things can happen in maybe with a lot less friction than we thought mm -hmm. because we're hearing op openings, you know, we're hearing some rustling, you know, in the back of our minds that we wouldn't hear if we weren't following our own sense of that movement. Yeah. I'm in total agreement with you, Amy. The thing that I was saying as the audio dropped was actually bridging the gap between this working within oneself and working within the world and, and speaking to this, what you were saying, you know, follow your own vocation where it's like, I am also not a person like I have no interest in demonstrating in the streets or shouting and I'm not interested in making public policy change. Right. I think these things are important as well. More what I am speaking to is I think within our own exploration, right. Is just not, not putting all of our eggs in any one basket that looks really different for every individual, but I think that um, sometimes there can be a lot of discourse within spiritual communities about like, if I just do this, you know, the world's going to be a better place. And I a little bit question that, you know, if, if, we, if any of us just do any one thing, I think that that's another way that we're limiting ourselves. It's not that everybody should do the same things or that the way that, you know, I'm going to follow my particular path in this life should be what anybody else does, right? I'm, 
you know, I also admire the folks that can make those kinds of changes that are about like large groups, but not my thing, right? Like I'm good in a different context. Um, so just also reflecting that, that it's useful to, to move within orientation so that I don't in my own inquiry get too fixed to like just looking inside or just looking outside. Even if I tend to as a being be more oriented right in a different part of that continuum, I think it merits a both and kind of perspective to that where, where we work both within Definitely. and without. I mean, I struggle mm-hmm. with this a lot um, yeah. because I often feel like maybe I should just do more, you know, practice or write, you know, and, and, you know, so at a certain point very recently, you know, I was just really open to the possibility, you know, maybe I, you know, maybe, you know, I, I've done what I need to do. Cause I don't, I'm not very invested. Like I'm really invested in results in my program, but I'm not in, I'm not invested in hanging on to it, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. long. I'd like it to continue, you know, for decades, but I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to have somebody else do it, right. you know, who's, mm-hmm. but so I was really in, in a, deeper way really ready to you know see should I you know hire somebody train them have them and you know maybe my life is ready to move on and and I my program is like for next year is literally doubled Mm. Mm. in number of schools in in the amount of um, employees and revenue (laughs) that we need to raise or are going to raise and I'm like, okay, I guess yeah. that was where the opening was. Yes, so yeah. yeah, it wasn't really what I planned, you know. Because, right. um, uh-huh. as you as you know, my my husband and and partner in crime, uh, Jeff Carrera, he you know he he teaches and he writes and you know he spends his time in the meditation world and mm-hmm. you know I sometimes I feel like oh I should be doing more of that um, at this stage or. Um, you know, and I'm up until we met, I was working on budgets for next year, you know, I'm like, really, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? But I had to go where the opening, you know, where it just felt like the, in a certain way that the, it's not the path of least resistance in the way we think about it, because of course there's always hard work, no matter what we're doing, but it did feel like uh, that was, <laughs> That was where the flow was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you um, that we can have a lot of ideas, and especially for spiritual, and we're in an intense practice, and we see people who've moved up, and mm-hmm. they've done more, or we see our, mm-hmm. you know, the stories of the great masters, and, right. you know, we're not even like a fraction as dedicated as their, you know, their little finger and you know if, if only we really applied ourselves we could really do that and we should just you know leave the world and and then you find yourself well that wasn't really my karma <laughs> okay right. uh, we can't we can't have ideas one way or the other and we also can't be complacent because of course we grow up in in a culture that teaches us to take care of ourselves 
at the expense of others. And that that's 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 the the you know that was the mother's milk we we were raised mm-hmm. with. Whether those are our values or not, it's right. it's just acculturated in our you know in our whole way of being and it takes a lot to keep disembedding. So of course, like you said, we have to keep questioning ourselves. But yeah. yeah. Life is funny. That it is. So Amy, we're we're coming on about an hour and a half and I want to be respectful of your time. Are there closing thoughts, places people should go, and we can put the website in the show notes, of course. Um, any anything you want to say before we wrap it up? Yeah. Um, for, for the Inner Strength Foundation, which now we're, we're changing, we're in the process of changing our name to Inner Strength Education because mm. it's more representative, do definitely go to the website. You'll find the app if you have nieces, nephews, children, you know, encourage them to use it, write reviews because that'll help it appear. So other it's free. So we're not getting anything out of this. So we're making this available. We really want to promote it. We want feedback. And if you're of means and you're inclined to support this work, please do. It's really needed. And, you know, my goal is to, I I just know it's going to be a really rough year for teens going back to school. And I know that, you know, some of the students I've taught, you know, just don't want to go back because of social anxiety and they're afraid and they feel bad because they've let themselves slip. And it's just going to be a really hard year. And we want to create as many tools, both locally where I am, but also digital. So to help as many, uh, you know, teens as possible feel that, support and encouragement and inspiration. So if you do have the means and are listening to it, please do reach out. And there are a lot of different ways to support this work. And again, I'm not, there may be other organizations like this in, in your community, but, but it's just, it's just so important. It's so important to like, to be able to share the wonder of consciousness at a time when when young people are defining themselves and giving them just a little bit of a possibility against you know a culture that is defined by things in space that mm-hmm. sense of what we can see and measure and and that gives just so much hope and optimism you you know I, I, I've just seen I've seen the most beautiful things happen uh, in the space, in these most unexpected circumstances with bells ringing and security guards clanging down the hall and, you know, lockers banging and students shouting and principals calling kids to the office and still kids having cosmic experiences in the middle of all that and and just seeing their faces light up with what's possible is, it's just so beautiful. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely to have this conversation with you. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you.